Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 21. Last week, I wrapped up the first dynasty and worked a ways through the second. I also covered the Turin King list. This week, I'm continuing through the second and diving into the history of the Palermo Stone. But before any of that, I'm going to take a few minutes and talk about the podcast itself which, if memory serves, I've only done once before. So this is the 105th episode, which means the podcast, since it's weekly and has published every week, just past its two-year anniversary. I won't say that I never expected to get this far, or that I did. Quite frankly, when I started, I didn't know what to expect. And I'll tell you one thing, though. I never expected that it would be two years in, and I'd only be on the second book of the Bible. But, there's so much in here that I really couldn't skip anything, and I hope that you'll find it gets better as it progresses. I'm certainly more comfortable in all aspects, from the research to the writing to the recording, editing, re-editing, and finally publishing. And in case you missed it, the one other time I mentioned it, But this isn't my full-time job. Instead, I manage to work the podcast in, around work, and family obligations. The way my week typically goes, well, really, optimally goes, is reading and writing some on Monday and Tuesday, ramping up Wednesday and Thursday. Then the final draft is completed sometime Friday. But in the case of this week, it was Saturday morning, Overall, I aim for about 3,500 words, no more than 4,000. So, a little quick math shows that 104 episodes at 3,500 words is in the neighborhood of 365,000 words. Which means, sometime in the next couple of months, I'll cross the 400,000 word threshold. That's breathtaking. And you thought that some of your co-workers talked too much. Don't sit next to me. Back to the weekly schedule. Saturday morning, I'll reread the text and work in a pronunciation guide, which in and of itself is more work than you would expect, especially when covering the ancient Egyptians. If everything goes well, I'll record on Saturday. If not, I'll get it recorded Sunday afternoon. The first audio edit is Sunday, the second Monday, and the third and final is Tuesday. That's right, three separate audio edits. That's the most tedious and really the least rewarding part of the whole process. Imagine having to listen to yourself over and over again. Next, I'll write up the summary and the keywords and submit for publication Wednesday evening. And, as astute as all of my highly intelligent listeners are, I'm sure you notice that my weeks overlap. And they do. I'm pulling double duty writing and audio editing Mondays through Wednesday. But some things, such as reading and writing, are easier done, no matter the location. I can read source material while running on a treadmill, and do some high-level audio editing while watching football or basketball. And the necessity of good audio editing is something that surprised me. In order to get the sound consistent and of sufficient quality, 
there's about two hours of editing that needs to occur for a 25-minute episode. Overall, the process is an intense, non-stop, seven-day-a-week task. In fact, I'm writing these words while on a snow-delayed flight home from a quick two-day business trip. And airplanes make for good writing, as long as it's not terribly bumpy and the laptop is fully charged. I even did the second audio edit of Chapter 3, Episode 20, while on the outbound flight just yesterday. This week, I'm a bit ahead of schedule, which is a relief. Last week, I got a day behind and didn't submit for publication until a few hours before the release. Too close for me. I've recorded the audio at my house, in hotel rooms, and even while visiting relatives. I've researched and written in more places than I can remember and spent time in cars, on planes, the subway, and who knows where else editing the audio. In order to keep the schedule, my laptop has been indispensable. Now for a few interesting tidbits. As of the last episode, the podcast has been heard in 128 countries on six continents. If I can figure out how, I'll upload a map of the geographic listening density. Now, having said that, it hasn't been heard on Antarctica or Greenland, and I know Greenland isn't a continent, but it is really large on a map. And I'd like to get at least one listener in both of those places, if only so that the map looks more complete. But it also isn't extremely surprising that I've had no listeners in these two cold land masses, since few people live there. There are listeners in all 50 states and all but two Canadian territories. The only two territories missing are Nunavut in Newfoundland and Labrador. Great Britain and Australia are also home to many listeners. No surprise there, as the podcast is in English, and that's what they speak there. Although not quite the same as my native tongue. Then there are a few surprising places, like Iraq, Rwanda, Indonesia, Syria, and a surprising high number of listeners in Saudi Arabia. I end each episode with requests that you rate the podcast on iTunes. And you should really do this if you can give it four or five stars. I'm not kidding when I say the reviews help others to find the series. It really does. The quantity, ratings, and frequency of the ratings gain the Apple logarithm and calls it to rise in search results. The higher a podcast is in the search results, the more people will find it. Then more people will rate it, and the cycle becomes self-fulfilling. I often get many of the same questions, so I might as well address them here. First, I've been approached by advertisers, and so far, I've turned them all down. I really like not having to worry about how they would feel about the content, one day, there may be a good fit, but so far, none. And I've been blessed enough professionally that the expense of the podcast is nowhere near being a burden. I'm often asked about my theological leanings. I think I may have addressed this once, but in case I haven't, the quick summary is that I'm Protestant. Having been raised in a household that essentially alternated between Presbyterian and Baptist, but... I try to keep all theological implications out of the podcast and focus on just the history. 
I've been asked once or twice to footnote everything and provide my references. I'm passing on that suggestion. I've written many academic articles where citing is an absolute requirement, and it slows the process down tremendously. It also makes it extremely boring. This isn't an academic forum, and I need to make it less dense instead of more. Also, when's the last time you heard something on the radio or watched an educational program that cited all their sources, or even some of their sources? They don't, because it's a different format. I've also been asked to provide the transcripts. I'm considering this, but it would involve maybe another hour or so of work a week to proof and correct grammatical issues. And, as I've already demonstrated, my week is rather full. I've been approached about turning the podcast into a book. My short answer is, not yet. For now, the same reasons as why I've shunned advertisers and I'm not footnoting apply. Maybe at some point in the future. But for now, I'm having too much fun and I don't want to change the secret formula. And with that not-so-short two-anniversary monologue, let's get started. Actually, that was a bit premature. Last week, I finished the history of the Egyptian First Dynasty and began working my way through the Second. I also covered the history of the Turing King List and why it's important to what we know about the ancient Egyptians. This week, I'm continuing the history of the Second Dynasty and also covering the history of the Palmyra Stone. So now, let's get started. I left off last week at the Inn of Nunet Jezreel. After him, there was Wajaniz, who ruled for an unknown length sometime around 2740 BC. He is only known through the king list produced during the Ramsesside period, just like the Turin king list in the Palmyra Stone. But the Turin list is partially damaged in the period around his name. And after covering the history of that list in the last episode, I'm sure you can now understand a little bit better why I'm always referring to the limitations caused by its damage. And, with only those sources, little is really known concerning him. Those lists all say that he succeeded Nunetja and preceded Sinnej, so at least we know the time period. Manetho referred to him, at least we think it's him, as Manetho used the name of Talus. But this also could have been Pharaoh Vinik, who may or may not have been the same as Wanejiz. The period is really confusing, mostly due to the lack of consistent historical records. So let's just keep moving along. The Turin list claim he ruled for 54 years, while Manetho was much shorter with 17 years. It seems that he may have been the last ruler of the Second Dynasty to reign over a unified Egypt as his name has been found in both Memphis and Thinez. But some modern researchers believe the kingdom may have been split during his reign. These researchers point to a ruler named Peribson. How and when this potential ruler's reign overlapped with Wanages is really unknown and very speculative. So that's about all we know concerning both Peribson and Wanages. Like I mentioned, after Wanages was Sinej, who ruled in the middle of the 28th century BC. And there are some researchers who believe he was one and the same as Peribson, 
but this belief is not very common. Like his predecessors, his name was found on later king list, which works out well for him as he may have otherwise disappeared. Both the Turin list and the Palmyra stone use the hieroglyph of a plucked goose for him. Now that's a legacy. The length of his reign is largely unknown too. With the Turin list claiming 70 years and Manetho 41, but unlike his predecessor, there have been a few artifacts uncovered by modern researchers that may attest to his rule. There is an inscription found in Giza. More specifically, it's a small, thin-walled and polished diorite shard, which was once part of a flat bowl. Where it broke off from the bowl, it was inscribed with, quoting, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Sinage, end quote. The shard was uncovered in 1909 by a German Egyptologist. And, since I did take a dive into the personal earlier in this episode, it's somewhat more acceptable for me to inject my personal thoughts, maybe just this once. And in this case, whenever I hear of a 20th century German Egyptologist, of course I envision a character from Indiana Jones, the first one. Moving along. There's also an inscription on the door in the tomb of a high priest found at Saqqara. The priest was referred to as the overseer of all the Wab priests of King Peribsen in the necropolis of King Sinage, overseer of the Ka priest of King Sinage, and God's servant of Sinage. But there's a problem with the inscription. The actual writing isn't in a language that dates to probably no earlier than the Third Dynasty, so it may not be of any help in attesting to his reign. He's mentioned in the Berlin Papyrus I covered a couple of episodes ago. This document is the one concerning medical treatments. It's thought that Pharaoh Sinage received the book as an inheritance gift. Finally, there's a small bronze statue in the shape of a kneeling king wearing the white crown of Upper Egypt and holding incense burners in his hands. The name is found carved into the back of a belt on the back of the figurine. If you'll think back to last week, I mentioned that Pharaoh Nunetja may have split the kingdom in two, leaving it to two separate rulers. This could have been due to an overly complex state are due to a natural disaster. Well, this may have happened at the Innocentage reign, too. Or it may be the same incident. Sparse records lead to great speculation. After Sinage, the various king lists differ in identifying who came next. Both the Saqqara and Turin list name the kings Neferka, Neferka Saqqar, and Hajifa as the first immediate successors. But the Abadaios list makes no mention of this trio and instead names King Dajeje. A possible reconciliation of all these names is that the kingdom was indeed split when Senej began his rule or during his reign. Pharaohs such as Sekhumub and Peribsen may have ruled Upper Egypt, while Senej and his successors, specifically Neferka and Hajefa I, may have ruled Lower Egypt. The kingdom would be reunited by Kazakimwai, who may be another name for Dejeje. Did you get all of that? No worries, there's no quiz. 
And remember at the beginning of the episode when I said I spent a significant portion of time putting together a pronunciation guide for each episode? Names such as these are why. Finally, and as is common with many of the lesser-known early pharaohs, the location of Senech's tomb is unknown. It's believed that he may have been buried at Saqqara, and this belief is based on his priest's tomb being found there, as in that era, the priests were usually buried near the pharaoh. It's possible that his tomb was later incorporated into the tomb of a later pharaoh, but for now, we just don't know. Since I mentioned yet again all of the king lists, I might as well wrap up this episode with a Palermo stone. The Palermo stone is a stelene known as the Royal Annals of the Old Kingdom of Ancient Egypt. The stone is actually one of seven surviving fragments of a stele. It's inscribed with a list of the kings from the 1st dynasty to the 5th dynasty, with the 1st dynasty beginning in about 3150 BC and the 5th dynasty ending in about 2283 BC, so roughly 900 years. The inscription also recorded significant events in each year of their reigns. Since it ended in the 5th dynasty, it was probably created then, but there is also the theory that it was made much later, maybe in the 25th dynasty, which was between 747 and 656 BC. It is rather apparent from the context in the inscription that it was made not soon after the periods described but it could have been sourced from an Old Kingdom original. It is currently located at the Regional Archaeological Museum Antonio Salinas in the city of Palermo, Italy, on the island of Sicily, hence the name. The other fragments from the stele are located in Cairo and London. Occasionally, it will be called the Cairo Annal Stone or the Cairo Stone, but that is officially used to describe the fragments of the royal annals now in Cairo, and that's a bit pedantic. It is thought that the pieces of the stele are likely the oldest surviving historical text from ancient Egypt. As such, well they, all seven pieces, are a significant source for Egyptian history from the Old Kingdom. Given how widespread the fragments were, it's possible that some of the pieces aren't part of the original. The text is tricky to decipher due to both the state of the inscription and also because of how much the language evolved over the many years. It's also possible, maybe even likely, that errors were made in its creation, and this would be especially likely if it is a copy from another document. The stone itself is black basalt and was originally about 2 feet or 60 centimeters wide and 7 feet are just over two meters high. And when I say originally, I mean when all the pieces held into three different museums are pieced back together. The actual Palmero stone is a fraction of this size at about 10 inches or 25 centimeters wide and 17 inches or 44 centimeters tall. It's also three inches or seven centimeters thick. Hieroglyphs concerning the pharaohs and events during their reigns can be found on both the front and back. In addition to naming the pharaohs, it also names their mothers, probably of concern given the tradition of polygamy. Like I mentioned in the last episode, the stone routinely gives the extent of the annual Nile flooding 
the dates and names of regular festivals. Details concerning taxation, like the frequent cattle censuses. It also records details concerning art, architecture, and warfare. And this next tidbit is a bit unusual. The original location of the stone is unknown. Unlike almost every other archaeological artifact that I covered, the how, when, and where the stone was rediscovered is lost to the mysteries of history. The fragment currently located in Cairo is thought to have been found at an archaeological site at Memphis, while the three other fragments also in Cairo are thought to have been found in the Middle East. A similar story for the Palermo stone has not been proposed. And before you discount the Cairo stone's multiple stories, keep in mind that steely could have been broken up, scattered, and then rediscovered in the different places. Or maybe not. But the more important part, at least in my opinion, is that it was found, has been protected, and is now being studied. You may be wondering how the fragment in Italy got there. In 1859, it was purchased by a Sicilian lawyer and antiquities collector who brought it to the city seven years later. Eleven years after that, so in 1877, it was given to the city's museum. The Cairo Museum acquired five fragments between 1895 and 1914. A fifth was purchased on the antiquities market in 1963. The fragment in London is relatively small, and was brought there by British archaeologist Flinders Petrie. And, if you're paying attention, I think this is the third consecutive episode he's made it into. That's probably some sort of record for an archaeologist, but he's got a ways to go before he can rival Josephus's mentions. For many years, the stone fragments were more curiosities than vital historical records. This importance was finally discovered in 1895 and not translated until 1902 by German archaeologist Heinrich Schaefer. The Palermo Stone is extremely important as it's currently the only artifact that preserves many of the names of members of the royal family during the first five dynasties. The other lists created during the New Kingdom like the Turin list and the Abadios king list, identify Menes as the first king of the first dynasty and credit him with unifying Egypt. But the Palermo stone records earlier rulers of both Upper and Lower Egypt, rulers referred to as pre-dynastic. It appears that Manetho may have used sources similar to the stone, or maybe even the stone itself, when he wrote his work. But, there are other similarities in his work to the Turin list, so the most likely explanation is that he wrestled with the Virgin list and attempted to write a coherent work, The Struggle of the Ages. And that's where I'll end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the pharaoh known as Seth Piribson. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. 
Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.